Hey, I'm Tiffany Weiss, and this is the best of What's Mine is Yours. Good morning. Morning. There's some coffee behind me. Great, just what I need. What do you want to write today? I did have this one idea. Have you ever heard a song and felt like it was yours? That it was written for you? Me too. And that's why I moved to Nashville, Tennessee to record and sing songs written by people who have written songs you've heard. The songs you have grown to love, the songs you were raised on, and the songs that you've attached your stories to. Come along with me as I interview songwriters who write the words that inspire all of us. This is What's Mine is Yours. Our guest today is Alex Klein. Alex was raised in Northern California. Her love and passion for music led her to Berklee School of Music in Boston, which then led her to Nashville, Tennessee, where she had joined the group called the Luna Bells. After she left the group, it was here in Nashville where she realized not only was she a songwriter, but had a love for producing. Alex's songs have been recorded by a variety of artists, including Reba McIntyre, Ronnie Dunn, Tennille Arts, and Mitchell Tenpenny. I was really happy to sit down with Alex because she has recently made history with the first ever song that went number one that was produced by a female, written by females, and performed and recorded by a female artist. So that was a really cool thing to see. And I just wanted to talk about that because it's a big thing for her in town. What led you to being a part of the group, the Luna Bells? Right when the fireman's daughter and I broke up, I was trying to figure out what to do with myself next. I hadn't really gotten into like the music row scene. I had gotten this message from this guy, Jeff Copeland, and he said, I just saw a bunch of videos of you playing like banjo and guitar and slide and all this stuff. And he was like, first of all, I promise I'm not some creep from the Internet. (laughs) He worked with Love and Theft, if you remember Love and Theft. They're from my part of town in Sacramento. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he had kind of put them together, like on Craigslist, got them a record deal, and they had just had a top 10. And he was trying to do that with another band. And these girls who were the three other girls in the Luna Bells who were sisters, they had just moved from New York. He was from New York, so they knew each other from up there and wanted them to start this country band, but he wanted the band to be like a self-sustaining female group. So mm-hmm. he really needed a lead player, like a, a multi-instrumentalist. And so one of the girls played drums, one played acoustic guitar, and the other played piano and stuff. He was like, would you be interested in meeting the girls and seeing if this might be a good fit? And okay, this seems like a cool opportunity. The next night, we all got drinks together. Mm -hmm. Then we went back to their house in East Nashville and just like jammed or something. And we're like, oh, this is cool. Anyways, we became the Luna Bells after that. Yeah. And we're together for two years and And signed to Sony. Yeah. Which Uh is really cool. Really cool. Yeah. And I've read why Mm -hmm. you kind of stepped away from the idea Mm -hmm. of being in a band, Mm -hmm. being an artist. Mm -hmm. And can you tell us why that wasn't a fit for you? Yeah. Well, first of all, it was an awesome experience. I wouldn't trade the knowledge that I have of going through that for anything. And I met so many amazing people that I still work with today in the business from that. So that was amazing. But I definitely got an education in what it's like to 
get a record deal and then right when you think, oh, well, that's the hard part's over, I got a record deal, then really how hard it mm-hmm. is putting together a festival set and going out on the road and doing the radio tour and being crammed in a minivan. And we kind of hit the sweet spot of the industry right when nobody was making money and they hadn't figured out how to monetize like streaming. So we got a non-existent advance. We were just like crammed in a minivan the whole time. It was very unglamorous. Yeah. <laughs> so I learned that lifestyle, even in the best of circumstances, is you're either built for it and it's in your blood or it's not because you have to really want to wake up at 4 a.m. for that lobby call and do your hair and makeup and go crappy hotel coffee. Yeah. And yeah. And show up to the radio station and sing in a conference room to a handful of people. I mean, it's not a very inspiring setting to do a radio. And we would be so exhausted. We first of all, we were playing the same six songs, maybe three songs. But over and over and over again for three months. So I could do those songs asleep. And some days I basically was. But we would be hitting up three different radio stations in a day. So we'd land in Minnesota, go to Wisconsin, end up in Chicago. And there would be times where we'd be standing and we'd be in these conference rooms playing. And we'd hit the second verse of a song. And it was like the second or third one of the day that we were doing. And I was like, oh, my God, wait is this the first time I'm playing the second for like, is this which ver- like I would forget if I had played this song at this point in this conference room or another point. And I totally you would just be so tired and out of it. And it just all started to blend together. You said something in an interview that was actually mm-hmm. it, it made so much sense for somebody in your position of you're saying I wanted to get home so I could create instead of yeah. keep recreating. Yes. Yeah. Somebody had once said to me. You can either create or you can recreate. And that really stuck with me. And it felt like being in that band, I was just recreating the same handful of songs over and over and over again on a stage, in a conference room, wherever we were. And I felt like I was actually a worse musician than I had been in a while because it was really just going through the motions, at least for me. And I know people who no, I love that stuff. I, I never really loved performing. I would love performing here and there, but people would say to me, like our producer or people from the label, you kind of look like a bitch on stage because I wasn't singing. So I feel like it feels natural. You're singing and you're kind of smiling because your face is already moving, but I could never figure out how to play banjo and just crack a smile and make it feel natural because I was concentrating, but I would always just kind of look like, uh, I'm, you know, What's happening now? Mm-hmm. And so, and I had half a dozen instruments on stage. I was always so stressed about grabbing my dobro and then grabbing my guitar and making it while the intro of the songs happened. And so it was just like a lot of schlepping instruments and being stressed out and kind of just, I don't know. And also on top of it, I loved being a part of that experience, but it wasn't my music. These girls were sisters. They'd always been playing music together and I was never going to be as in with the creative process as they were because mm-hmm. they made creative decisions over dinner or whatever, or two of them who were kind of the lead singers were going to do most of the writing and the banjo player that they asked to join was probably not going to get any songs mm-hmm. on the record. And it wasn't quite my style of music. Maybe if I had been super passionate about the 
material or I could have been a part of the creating process a little bit more as opposed to, okay, I'm just like learning Uh these songs and going to rehearsal and then having to spend all of my time with just this group of people. Did you write anything for them? The great thing about it is it did get me into some writing rooms for the first time, probably some rooms that I shouldn't have been Mm -hmm. in because I hadn't done a ton of co-writing up to then. I was kind of in the world before where you write by yourself or with one of your friends or something. And so I did get my foot in the door in Music Row a little bit, but we only ended up putting one song out and Natalie Hemby wrote it without any of us. But we had recorded a few others, but it was stuff that the two older sisters had written. So, yeah. Do you Mm -hmm. guys still stay in touch at all? No. Gabby, who is the youngest, who is the drummer, she is super sweet. We, every once in a while, message each other on Instagram, but the other two and I haven't spoken in a while. When you were on radio tour and kind of making a Mm -hmm. rise in the Luna Bells, who were the artists at the time that were also rising? That are still around, maybe. That are still around. I remember a lot that aren't still around. We'll give those names, too, because I'm sure that some people will remember. Well, I will say one just because one of the girls and I are really good friends now, but the Jane Deere girls, we were all coming up at the same time. And Nellie Reeves, who is the blonde banjo player in there, she and I are really good friends. When we got signed to Sony... The Jane Deere girls got signed to Warner and the Dixie Chicks had just announced, screw you, country music, we're not coming back. And so every label was like, we need to get the next female group. So we were Sony's answer. I think every label had one and all of them don't exist anymore. But Nellie was in the Jane Deere girls. And I just remember we'd run into because like you're all going to the airport around the same time or passing each other's buses or vans or whatever. And I remember seeing Nellie from afar, and she played banjo, and I played banjo, and we were in competing girl groups and whatever, and I'd be like, the drama! Eyeing each other up, and now it's so funny because we're best friends. Anyone that you remember that's still around? Solo artists? Gosh, well, I remember Kelly Pickler was on our label, so she was really popping off at the time, Mm -hmm. and Kenny was on our label. I mean, he was obviously already crushing it, but... Gloriana was out there at the time. So I got another group that's not really around anymore. But those were the people that I kind of remember seeing around. You are a very Mm -hmm. talented songwriter, but Mm -hmm. you're also a very talented producer. Before we get to the producing aspect of it, tell me about your start with songwriting here in Nashville. Obviously, you said with the Luna Bells, you got in some doors on Music Row. Did you just start making that a thing where you were constantly getting in rights? You were doing that. Well, after I left the Luna Bells, I was kind of distraught about suddenly trying to figure out what to do with myself. Oh, my God, I just lost a record deal. And that can be really a tough moment. But then I kind of took about 48 hours to realize that that was so not my path and not what I moved here to do anyways. So Mm -hmm. then I decided to really just focus on writing after that. And I got into a publishing deal quickly, which wasn't the best publishing deal. So I'm not going to shout out the, the company. <laughs> That's okay. But I did start making some connections throughout that and writing mm-hmm. full time. And then I signed to Starstruck after about a year of that other place and really started doing it. Okay. For real. I've been mm-hmm. looking through your songs who the cut them and recorded by and it's a lot of different artists of different ages yeah and styles and eras what do you think it is about your style of songwriting that is able to be 
encapsulated and taken on by a broad range of people, which I think is really intriguing. Yeah, that's a great question. I've had Reba and Ronnie Dunn record my songs. I wrote for Reba's company for a few years. And ironically, I finally got a Reba cut the month after I left Starstruck. (laughs) But I had a group of girls there where we specifically were trying to get on that project. So I wouldn't say that necessarily I would have thought of really investing in writing the kind of stuff that Reba would be maybe interested in recording. But I'm really glad that I did because that's a different type of song than writing for a younger artist. And Ronnie, I mean, that was just a song that we just wrote for whatever dude. And I'll tell a quick story how I ended up getting that Ronnie cut. Well, we had, speaking of Reba, myself, Liz Hangber, and uh, Kellis Collins and Aaron Underland, we had all kind of been writing hard for this Reba project. And if you don't know who Liz Hangber is, she is like Reba's gal. She has been on like, I think, just about every Reba record since, I mean, since wow. the good old days. So she wrote and still and a bunch of big stuff for her. So she really is tapped into Reba and she'll kind of reach out to her and stuff like that and send her songs. And so when she was looking for not this last record, but the record before, we wrote really hard for that. And we had a ton of songs that were in the pile. I mean, some songs we were like, they're going to cut this next week. Or Reba said, this is the song. And Mm -hmm. where I was like, and I'd never had a major cut before. So I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to own this. And not only am I going to have a Reba cut, I might get half of this Reba record. We were really certain about that. And then she had her first cut session, or maybe it was her second or something. And the day before, Liz and I went to go write with Ben Stennis, who we ended up writing Damn Drunk With for Ronnie Dunn. But we were supposed to write with Ben because we were getting all of these Reba holds, like a Reba pitch. And so the day before, none of the songs made Reba's first round of cutting. And we were just kind of devastated. We go into that right that day with Ben. And we're just like, Ben, we cannot write a Reba song today. Can we just write a dude song today? And he was luckily very cool about it. And he was like, yeah, sure, whatever. We ended up writing Damn Drunk that day. And I like to think that that song at that moment in my life or our lives was bigger than if we had made that first Reba record. So we wrote that. And then we ended up getting that to Ronnie because starstruck cliff williamson vacations with ronnie i mean ronnie and reba are like bffs mm-hmm. and so they've all known each other for forever so he shot him that song and he fell in love with it and ended up recording it we never ended up making that reba record but one of the songs that was like kind of a loose hold that she had had not one of the ones even where she was like oh i'm cutting the song she ended up coming back to the next record and then recording it so it all was this amazing full circle totally. meant to be like universe like fate kind of thing with those songs that's the great thing about reba too is she'll not want something maybe for this record but she loves it but she'll remember it like three five years later yeah because that song was like six seven years old by the time she recorded it that's what i think is the magic about nashville and the songwriting community i know we're we're drifting away from the idea of pitching songs and which i'm kind of sad about but hopefully again pendulum swinging because there are so many hidden treasures and things that weren't written yesterday in the writing room for this project or this artist. And it's just something that can find a home because there's so much of that. Mm -hmm. What artist is your biggest wow moment as a songwriter? 
who has cut one of your songs. Oh. Is it Reba? It was, gosh, Ronnie probably was just because that was the first cut that I had where I was like, this is a legend singing my song. That was just so surreal. I remember hearing his recording for the first time. They had sent a version to Cliff before it was being released. And we like drove around in the car listening to it. And I just like, I think so we, cool. me and my publisher at the time just cried a little bit. Yeah. And that ended up being a single and just the reaction that we had and hearing him sing that and everything. That was probably That's my nice. first really super special moment. Alex not only plays every instrument with a string, but she also produces. She also songwrites. She's also been in a girl group before that was a signed act. What hasn't she done? I find her to be probably one of the most well-rounded guests we've had because she can really talk about it musically from all angles. Not to mention being mentored by one of the greatest producers in this city to ever exist, Dan Huff. You just really look at Alex as a genuine power player. And I can't wait to see what more comes from her because it's going to be incredible. If you actually stand back and you look at how well-rounded this woman is and what she's capable of, no one will underestimate her because she's a girl. So you are a part of Making History recently. You were a part of the song Somebody Like That, the Tenille Arts song that you produced, helped co-write, mm-hmm. and it was an all-female smash. What was it like to write that song? Tell me about that day. Tell me about that experience. Yeah. Well, it was Allison Veltz, Cruz, and Tenille and myself, and it was only the second song we ever all wrote together. Wow. Yeah. And we wrote half of the song in my spare bedroom because my studio had just flooded the week before, and we were kind of just crammed in there. And I don't even remember how we came up with the idea. I think we were just kind of talking about wanting to do something positive. And I remember we wrote that chorus and we knew that there was something really special about it. We like to joke that that song manifested Tenille's current boyfriend that she's been with for three He's and a half years. He's such a nice guy. Yeah, because they met shortly after that. But we wrote half of it that day. And then I think a couple weeks later, we got together and finished it. When we turned that into our team, because Tenille and I were both over at Reviver at the time, everyone just was like, oh, my God. We knew that we loved it. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I love things and people are like, eh. <laughs> but they were like, this is the thing. So that was really exciting. Was it ever intended for anybody else other than Tenille? No, it was definitely intended for Tenille, but she already had another single that was slated Mm -hmm. to come out, which I produced, but I didn't write, called Call You Names, which was a song about her mother. So that went to radio, and about six or seven months later, then they ended up putting out somebody like that at the beginning of 2020 Mm -hmm. in January. But I honestly was like, you know, been in this town for so long and was just so used to things like doing okay that I, yeah, that I put out at the best or something. I'm like, oh, I'm sure minimal things will happen with this. Not because I didn't believe in it, but just because I think you start getting jaded in this town at a certain point. And Danielle is so talented and I believe in her as much or more than anybody. But she was on a very tiny label at the time. What kind of shot does this new female artist, which already like new female, like strikes against you and then tiny label, what kind of shot 
is that gonna i just thought i'd be stoked if we cracked the top 50 with this song and so to have it do what it did i was in disbelief that it was gonna go all the way until maybe the last couple of weeks of it i mean Mm -hmm. yeah and how how cool to be all together and to celebrate something like oh yeah that will bond us together for life we're all sisters because of that shared experience and the ride of going on all of that and i mean you guys obviously Mm -hmm. have such a great chemistry because i mean i've just listened to the song you guys just released with maddie and tay and it's the kind of the same dream team right yeah uh uh-huh except for we added tranny anderson to the mix she's on fire right now she's written a lot of great stuff and that's such a great song as well thank you that's really great i can't wait for that is that gonna go to radio well tenille has a single out right now i didn't produce that one so hopefully, you know, her follow-up single. So we'll see. Mm-hmm. And so now about your producing journey. I think this is also a really cool story of how you got started because it was actually a friend of yours that kind of woke you up to the idea that you already were a producer and you didn't even realize it. So can you share that? Erin Underlin, who is like a sister to me, she and I were writing at the time and I'd just gotten out of the Luna Bells, and she had written a couple of times with the girls in that group. She does her own artistry, and she had said, I need to find an acoustic guitar player to go out on the road with me, just like one side person. And somebody at the time was like, oh, you know, that Alex Klein girl, the banjo player or whatever from the Luna Bells just left the group. We hadn't even really met at the time, but she had left me a voice message, and I was obsessed with her writing. It was, like, shortly after Last Call came out. She had Mm -hmm. written that for Leanne Womack, and I was such a huge fan of hers. I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe Erin Enderlin wants me to. She's Yeah, she's so good. And so I ended up going out on a lot of club dates and stuff like that. We ended up bonding really quickly, and then we started writing together. And I had just started learning how to do demos very minimally, only because at the time, there wasn't really a track person role in the room. For the most part, you'd write a bunch of songs, and then your best songs of the month, you'd maybe go into a recording studio with a full band, and you know, you and your co-writers would split like a $1,000 bill per song, and that was just too expensive at the time for me to do that to all the songs that I want. And I was like, some of these could just use like a guitar vocal or whatever. So I had purchased Logic and taught myself how to do something really simple. And I was like, anything beyond this, I'm going to pay someone else to do. And then it just kind of snowballed until, well, I think I can figure out how to do this or add this. And then one day, Erin, we had been writing some songs together that she maybe wanted to record. And she asked me if I wanted to produce an EP for her. And I looked at her in disbelief and was like, why would you ask me to do that? I'm not a producer. And she was like, of course you are. It's kind of what you've been doing in the spare bedroom the whole time. But just do it Uh in a studio or on purpose. Okay. So I enlisted an engineer friend and we had almost no money. I mean, I kind of cringe now, but someone helped find some road musicians that were willing to come in on an off day for like a hundred bucks for the whole day. And we recorded the bare bones and I ended up overdubbing like all of the acoustic instruments, banjo, mandolin, dobro, all of that stuff to save money. I was flying by the seat of my pants. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know how to open up Pro Tools, which for anyone who's listening is kind of like the standard recording software program. So I was asking somebody to help me all the time with loading it up and helping me record. But 
the end product ended up being great and it got Erin some really great press and she got on the Opry for the first time. Yeah. And I got to play with her and that got me really excited about seeing the finished product and having these milestones with artists. It's really fun. After that, I was like, okay, I want to do this for real. So I locked myself in my little studio and learned Pro Tools for a month. And then because of Air NCP, once it came out, then I started to get some interest from some other people. I've been able to string together some projects ever since then. So I just think it's cool that somebody saw something in you that you didn't even see in yourself. Yeah, totally. Yeah. friend. And would you have even really gone down that road if she didn't say that to you? I'd like to think that eventually maybe I would have, but it definitely wouldn't have been as quickly. It probably would have taken a while to have that confidence in myself or realize that that could be sure my path. And then because of that job, I got other jobs too. So it definitely, I don't know how much longer it would have taken if she hadn't given me that opportunity and believed in me. So yeah, yeah, she, yeah I yes. give her a lot of credit. Yeah. I know that you've worked alongside with Dan Huff. Mm-hmm. And how much, if any, does his producing style influence yours? Dan's a legend. So, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, he's very, yeah, very influential to me. I mean, he has been a really great sounding board. And I brought in some stuff that I've worked on just to get his opinion. And he's opened up some of his sessions to show me what he's working on. And he's let me come crash a session a time or two. And his philosophy about producing is really great. I will get really stuck on caring about something that he'll tell me nobody else cares about in the most loving way i'll be like oh my god i don't like how this mix is sounding or they want me to use a different mixer they want me to make this tweak and i don't agree or what if i screwed this up and he'll just be like alex the general public is not going to know the difference mix a mix b is not going to be the difference one of his biggest hits i hope he doesn't mind me saying and i won't say which one it is but he was like he remembers hearing it when it came out for the first time and it suddenly hit him that he did not like how whatever mm-hmm. sounded on it how that he thought the drums were too loud or whatever and it ended up being a huge hit it was one of his first big ones and he was like maybe that thing that i didn't like about it everybody else loved about sure. it and so when you live too close to things yes totally so i think that's a great philosophy because honestly there are things about somebody like that that i'm like oh i would produce that differently today or why did i add that why was that clap so loud or why was that whatever and at the time i get a little ocd once a song is finished and i know i can't screw with it anymore then i have a really hard time listening back to it because i'll usually know that i'll find something that i want to change about it and then i'll convince myself that's probably gonna ruin the song and then i realize after some time that Nobody cares. Nobody's hearing whatever I'm hearing in my head. Or maybe that's the thing that somebody likes about it because all of music is objective and nothing is perfect and everything is just our own interpretation at that moment of what that song Mm -hmm. should be. So anyways, he's great. He takes everything in stride. So Mm -hmm. whenever I would call him and freak out about something, he'd just be like, yeah, it's cool. Because it all starts with a song and a songwriter. Hey, thanks for listening to What's Mine Is Yours, the podcast with Tiffany Woods. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can stay updated with all things What's Mine Is Yours by visiting 
WMIYpodcast.com or following me on socials at Tiffany Woys and the podcast at WMIYpodcast. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. We really appreciate it. Recorded in Nashville, Tennessee. Produced in Los Angeles, California. Presented by Tiffany Woys in conjunction with Roundhouse Entertainment. Executive producers Tiffany Woys and The Ed Hill. Original music from Robert Shavers and Kiefer Thompson. Recorded and engineered by Robert Shavers. You can check out my music on all streaming services and a special playlist we've created for each episode with songs written by each guest only on Spotify. Thanks for listening to What's Mine is Yours. 